Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. My name is Peyton, and we're so glad that you've joined us this week for a very different type of episode. This will be the first of two back-to-back episodes featuring dual speakers, so we're going to test how that works. If you have any thoughts, please let us know. We always love hearing from you. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different. Um, in terms of it's more of a story and we're going to talk about addiction medicine so heads up to anyone for who that might be a sensitive topic in the lens of the Tom Petty story so we have two great speakers who are very qualified to speak about this and very passionate about this as well so I'm going to introduce them and then I'm going to toss it over to Christian who's going to be moderating today's episode the first of two guests is Kathy Bartell MHA who began her career as a respiratory therapist at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York, where she served in the ER, ICU, and NICU. Later, she entered the administrative field and worked in the greater Hartford, Connecticut area for over 30 years. Positions have included Director of Provider Relations for a startup HMO, Consultant for a boutique firm, Physician Practice Administrator for a large medical group, CEO and Administrator of Connecticut Surgery Center. In 2020, she's recently returned to her alma mater and Christian and I's uh, wonderful school, Cornell University, and serves as the Associate Director of the Sloan Program in Health Administration. In this position, Kathy's primary role focuses on student placement in internships and jobs. And the second of our two guests is Penny Mills, who is a retired CEO of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, the leading professional organization representing addiction medicine professionals. During her tenure at ASAM, she more than tripled the staff size and organizational budget while bringing national attention to patient access for addiction treatment. Mills is currently providing healthcare consulting while serving as an executive in residence with the Sloan Program in Health Administration here at Cornell University. Mills has been recognized with several awards, including the AMA Medical Executive Lifetime Achievement Award, the John P. McGovern Award on Addiction and Society, and the NIAAA Senator Harold Hughes Memorial Award. Her leadership has been profiled in national publications, including the American Healthcare Leader, AHL. We're so excited about these two guests. I don't think there's anybody more passionate about this topic or more qualified to speak on it. So we hope you'll enjoy this very different episode about the life of Tom Petty and what we can all do to help those who are struggling with addiction. All right. Now that we've introduced Kathy and Penny, I just want to ask Kathy and Penny, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you. Snowing in Ithaca as usual. (laughs) <laughs> Is it really? No, the sun's out here in uh, Chevy Chase. <laughs> there you go. Very nice. Well, there's only going to be one um, host of this episode today. Peyton, um, unfortunately, has no voice. And as it turns out, you can't record a podcast if you don't have a voice. Um, <laughs> so hoping that he's he's back uh, back soon and we can record more podcasts to um, soon. But until then, it's just going to be my, vo- my voice from the, the host. And um, I'm really excited. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited about this episode. It's going to be a very introspective, um, meaningful episode and, and relevant to lots of our listeners. Um, and the way that we're going to tee up this episode is we're going to kind of start with um, with stories um, of, a, of a public figure that many of us are likely aware of. And, kind of, and then after that, tie that into um, into kind of larger scale policy and, and the medicine of addiction and implications for us as healthcare leaders. So um, just to kind of kick off this episode, I'm going to pass it off to, to Kathy to tell us about, about Tom Petty. Thank you, Christian. Um, I really appreciate being able to tell this very fun story before we delve into 
a much more serious matter. Uh, but just to set the scene, um, the year is 1980 and I'm in high school. Um, and my friends happened to say to me in the hallway, hey, Kathy, we are going to get tickets to see Tom Petty at Saratoga Performing Arts Center. Do you want to come along with us? And um, I wasn't quite a Tom Petty fan yet. And I, I actually had to say to them, remind me what he sings. And, you know, they said, you know, you know, break down refugee. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to go. I want to go. So a whole bunch of my friends and I would go off to Saratoga Performing Arts Center and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers just pull off this amazing concert. And literally right then and there in that space, we become lifelong Tom Petty fans. So much so that by the Next year, as it rolls around, now we're going to be juniors in high school. Um, Tom Petty is now on his Hard Promises tour and more amazing songs coming out, such as The Waiting. And we decide that we really want to get up close and personal with Tom Petty. Uh, so we stand in line to buy tickets uh, so that we can see the whites of his eyes. We really want to enjoy this next concert because now we're all big fans. And re reminder, there's no cell phones or computers back then. You, you literally have to sneak out of school and go stand in line somewhere <laughs> to buy tickets. So we do, we get these amazing tickets, we go to the concert, and again, just spectacular. And what was really fun about uh, that uh, night at Saratoga is that my friends and I had figured out how to hang out after these shows at this particular fence and meet rock stars because sometimes they'd come out of Saratoga and come up to this fence and sign autograph books and so forth. And we, we met so many stars that summer and we decided we have to meet Tom Petty. Like this is a no brainer. We have to, we have to stand outside to do this. So unfortunately about a hundred other people had the same idea and we all sort of flocked to this part of the fence and security starts shooing us all away. But we knew that within the ground of the Saratoga National Park, you can kind of hide and sneak back every time the security guards send you away, you can sneak back. And so finally, it gets down to where there's only four kids waiting to meet Tom Betty and the Heartbreakers, me, my sister, my friend, Sue and my friend, Brian. And sure enough, <laughs> out the back door of Saratoga Performing Arts Center, everyone comes out, all the heartbreakers, except for Tom Petty. So it's just four on four. Uh, we've got Stan Lynch, Ron Blair, Ben Montage, Mike Campbell, standing there talking to us, signing autographs, thanking us for coming out in the rain because it was just a downpour. So much so that Tom Petty had changed the song uh, Louisiana Rain to Saratoga Rain. And they're just very appreciative that we're there. The rain starts to crash down again while we're standing out this fence and we're getting drenched and so are the heartbreakers. And my friend Sue happens to whisper in my ear, do you still have one of those sodas? I'm so, I'm so thirsty. The, one of the heartbreakers, I can't remember which one, hears this. And he says to us, hey, we've got food and drinks. We've got everything on the bus. Come on, everybody on the bus. And we're just standing there in awe because we realize we're about to get on the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers tour bus. So we all file in. And what I remember most is that the bus is, it's very dark in there. All there is is the, the, the illumination of the, the dashboard lights and a mini fridge because they're, they're pulling food out and they're pulling drinks and they're sharing with us. And there's probably like 15 people getting on and off the bus doing things. 
And my friend Brian and I perched ourselves up in these two incredibly comfortable bucket seats that look, look out on the back of the bus. Like you can see the whole aisle down the bus. And in the middle of all the commotion, in the haze of the light and the mini fridge opens, we actually see a figure in the, uh, in the bus sitting in uh, you know, a seat. And we see this person take a drag on his cigarette. And I remember the cigarette sort of lights up the face. And, and I grabbed my, my friend's arm. And I said to Brian, I was like, I, I, th I think Tom Petty's on the bus. And sure enough, there's Tom Petty sitting like, you know, five or eight feet away from us. And um, my friend Brian and I, we, we, you know, we garner the courage to say to him, uh, hello, <laughs> you know, we're, we're just so awestruck. And Tom Petty in that beautiful, majestic Southern drawl that he has says to us, hey, how you doing? How'd you like the concert? And Brian and I are just, you know, so nervous and starstruck that we start rambling. We start, we start talking about last year's concert. We start talking about this year's concert, you know, how much, every song, how much we love this. But what Tom Petty is most taken by when, we, he, re, when he really draws into the conversation is that my friend Brian has established a band in high school with a couple of players and they're playing Tom Petty songs. And Tom Petty is just so taken with the fact that Brian has established a band and is playing his songs and um, starts this whole dialogue about this. And I think Tom Petty really felt sort of validated as a rock star because now kids in high school are playing his music. But what was really amazing about that night is watching how in control Tom Petty was of everything. During our that 20 minute conversation with him, he's sort of getting up, he's He's looking outside. He's making sure all the heartbreakers are on the bus. He's making sure the roadies are getting the guitars, you know, in the bus behind us. He's 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 looking around. He, he's in command. And at one point, he actually says to me, <laughs> um, "Hey, can you can you see out the bus? Can you see a guy with a ponytail? That's my manager, and I need to talk to him." And I I said, "Yeah, I can I can see him. He's he's out there by the by the fence." And, uh, and I say to Tom Petty, do you want me to go get him for you? So that was the one errand, you know, that I ran for Tom Petty. But what really struck me is that Tom Petty, obviously he's the lead singer, but he's clearly the master of ceremonies. He's got it all going on. He's directing, he's, he's, he's putting everybody in place and making everything happen. And it was just a majestic moment to meet him and, and see him in operation. So what a, what a fun encounter. I mean, I, I remember when I was in Ithaca, always looking at shows when shows were still happening at Saratoga. And I always told myself I was going to make it to a show out there. Of course, that's, that's not happening, but someday I'll, I'll make it there. And of course our listeners can't see this, but, and I hope I don't embarrass Kathy, but she's actually wearing a Tom Petty t-shirt right now. So she's not, <laughs> not kidding about her Tom Petty fandom. Um, Kathy, I remember hearing about Tom Petty's passing um, a few years ago, 2017. Um, how do you think that encounter in 1981 relates to, to, um, Tom, to Tom Petty's passing um, four years ago? You know, I've, I've reflected on that many times and, and I've gone over meeting Tom Petty many times in my head. And, and I actually think there's a, a direct correlation uh, between all of this. You know, I saw Tom Petty as, as being the master of, of ceremonies. You know, Tom Petty um, wanted to do right by his family. 
by his band, by his fans. And he had this sort of laid back persona, but he was a perfectionist. You know, an example of this is that when he was recording a particular song, he became so frustrated with the outcome of that song that he, he, he made a fist and he punched it into a wall and he almost ended his career because he damaged his hand so much. But that, but that just proves how much of a perfectionist he was. Luckily, his hand healed and you know, he went on to make many, many more albums. But in reflecting on all of this, um, I've, I've realized Tom Petty went through some extremely difficult periods in his life. And they were both related to immense pain, different kinds of pain, but immense pain. Anybody who experiences a divorce knows how painful a divorce can be. And Tom Petty's divorce was particularly painful for him. Um, think about this. Um, Tom Petty had been abused when he was a young boy and he wanted nothing more than to just be a great father, great husband and so forth. And when his first marriage failed, he was in tremendous pain and so much pain that in his 40s, it didn't happen until his 40s, it, it's in the 1990s, he slips into an addiction uh, of, of heroin. Nobody knows about it. He doesn't tell a soul. He's in deep despair. He's in deep pain. He falls into drugs. And luckily, luckily for all of, his, all of us, his fans, he puts himself into recovery and he fully recovers from his heroin addiction. Um, we didn't know that for decades later until he started talking about it. So the first time he slips into using drugs, he's in emotional pain. Um, the second time, as we all know, happens decades later. Tom Petty is now on his 40th anniversary tour. And again, he's in tremendous pain, this time physical pain, but still pain. And he needs an escape from that. And unfortunately, um, that physical pain uh, causes a situation where he slips in again to taking a, a concoction of drugs uh, that by the way, never would have been prescribed in combination by any single physician. He, he's taking a concoction of seven drugs um, to diminish the pain. And I think he was in emotional and physical pain at that time. Um, certainly the physical pain because he had a full-on hip fracture while he was touring in that 40th anniversary. But people haven't discussed very much. I think on, on the day he died, he was probably in some emotional pain because the day before he died, um, he's now ended his tour a week earlier. He's, he's finished, you know, seeing thousands of fans across, across the country. Um, and the day before he died, uh, unfortunately, there is a horrific shooting in Las Vegas where a bunch of fans are out listening to a band and, you know, a shooter takes aim at them. And I know Tom Petty witnessed that the day before he died. So I believe on the day he died, he was in physical pain. And again, I think he was in emotional pain. And unfortunately, on that particular day, that combination of drugs took his life. So, Kathy, what do you think? What's the what's the main lesson you want people to learn from this from this um, started lighthearted kind of came to more heavy and serious story? What, what do you want people to take away from this? 
In order to answer that question, I want to first just briefly read the statement that the Petty family put out and then make a few remarks. And then I'd like to turn it over to Penny so we can hear from a, uh, an amazing professional. So in January of 2018, the Petty family released the following statement. Our family sat together this morning with the medical examiner coroner's office and we were informed of the final analysis that Tom Petty passed away due to an accidental drug overdose as a result of taking a variety of medications. Unfortunately, Tom's body suffered from many serious ailments, including emphysema, knee problems, and most significantly, a fractured hip. Despite this painful injury, he insisted on keeping his commitment to his fans, and he toured for 53 dates with a fractured hip, and as he did, it worsened to a more serious injury. On the day he died, he was informed his hip had graduated to a full-on break, and it is our feeling that the pain was simply unbearable and was the cause for his overuse of medication. We knew before the report was shared with us that he was prescribed various pain medications for a multitude of issues, including fentanyl patches. And we feel confident that this was, as the coroner found, an unfortunate accident. As a family, we recognize this report may spark a further discussion on the opioid crisis. And we feel that it is a healthy and necessary discussion. And we hope in some way that this report can save lives. Many people who overdose begin with a legitimate injury or simply do not understand the potency and nature, deadly nature of these medications. On a positive note, we know for certain he went painfully, painlessly and beautifully exhausted after doing what he loved the most. For one last time, performing live with his unmatchable rock band for his loyal fans on the biggest tour of his 40 plus year career, he was extremely proud of that achievement in the days before he passed. We continue to mourn with you and marvel at Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' incredible positive impact on music in the world. And we thank you all for your love and support over the past months. Thank you also for respecting the memory of the man who was truly great during this time on this planet, both publicly and privately. We would be grateful if you could respect the privacy of the entire Heartbreaker family during this difficult time. And what I, ref what, I, what I took from that is that the Petty family talks about pain. They talk about overuse of meds. They talk about this being an accident and they ask us to respect his memory. In my opinion, the best way to show respect is to get a better dialogue going about pain and that pain can happen to anyone. Pain can happen to a girl on a soccer field who you know, tears her ACL. It can happen to a young man battling cancer. Pain can happen to a woman suffering postpartum you know, depression. It can happen to a dad who loses his job. Pain can come from emotional, physical, stress-related pain and we need to start talking about that pain and the slippery slope it can cause someone to go into, you know, misuse of, of very powerful medications. And we absolutely need to say that there is no stigma around this. It can happen to anybody. And we need to start reflecting on that so people can get the help they need. And if beginning to talk about this at the Sloan program in healthcare administration saves just one life, it will be worth it. 
Thank you, Kathy. And you know, you're you're absolutely right that nobody's immune from 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 slipping into this this sort of a scenario, right? I that's one of the reasons why Peyton and I thought this episode was so important is because everybody within arm's reach knows just about everybody knows somebody that's battling addiction. It's, 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 it's a topic that's very near and dear to our hearts. And on this, on this podcast, a lot of the time we talk about macro level healthcare industry, business trends and things like that. But this is a topic that really, you know, isn't just interesting to people that are interested in, you know, tech or, you know, health law or whatever. This is, this is something that's close to close to near and dear to all of us. So Penny, I would love to hear a little bit about your response to the Tom Petty story kind of through the lens um, of a professional who has spent so many years in this space. Thanks, Christian. And thanks, Kathy, for starting with this story of Tom Petty. You know, it's both fortunate and unfortunate that it's stories of the overdose deaths of celebrities like Tom Petty or Prince or Philip Seymour Hoffman and others that get the public's attention. Um, fortunate because it helps to break the stigma of the disease there are in fact many families that don't even include in the obituaries of their family members who died from a drug overdose, why they died, because they feel shame and guilt about the cause of death. Um, it's unfortunate because there are tens of thousands of nameless people who die each year of drug overdoses. Last year, it was over 80,000, the most ever. And we need to talk more about this disease, not just the opioid crisis, which has gotten lots of national attention, but the disease of addiction. And while the number of people dying of overdoses, it's not the 500,000 who died of COVID, there's no vaccine for addiction. And in fact, the pandemic has made addiction worse and our society will need to deal with this once we've got COVID under control. Um, about one in 10 people over the age of 12 have the disease of addiction involving alcohol or illicit drugs. And when I talk about the disease, what do I mean? Um, addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions of brain circuits, genetics, the environment, and people's life experience like trauma. Um, people with this disease use substances or they engage in behaviors like gambling or online gaming that become compulsive and often despite harmful consequences, which often results in death sometimes. Addiction has significant medical and economic costs that need to be understood and addressed. The medical costs include not just the um, direct treatment of the disease and its comorbidities, but there's other costs that include unemployment, lost productivity, domestic violence, criminal justice, foster, foster care, et cetera. Um, but there are many barriers to addressing this deadly disease. And I tend to group them into four broad categories um, to help understand them and talk about them. The first is stigma, which we've already talked about a few minutes ago. There continues to be people who don't recognize addiction as a disease and who believe it's a moral failing. These attitudes influence how policies developed. It impacts patients, sometimes making them unwilling to seek treatment. It influences the language that's used to discuss the disease. If a patient has a positive drug test, it's called dirty. While if someone has a negative drug test, it's called clean. We don't use these terms about tests related to diabetes, but we do around tests related to addiction. 
Related to stigma is the lack of training for healthcare professionals about this disease. At best, medical students get seven hours of training around addiction in medical school for a condition that is as prevalent as diabetes. There is a significant deficit in an adequate and well-trained workforce, therefore, the disease, to deal with this disease. And even if providers are aware of the disease, they may not want to treat it because they may, and I've heard them say things like this, they don't want those patients in their practice or the hospital administrators don't want those patients in his or her hospital. But those patients, I would say, are already in the hospital or in the, in the doctor's office, whether or not they want to acknowledge and treat them. Did the provider um, who was treating Tom Petty for his pain, his hip fracture, talk to him about his medical history of addiction? How many times do providers prescribe medication without ever discussing a patient's personal history of addiction or their family history of addiction, when it's known that over 50% of the likelihood of someone developing addiction is hereditary? Compounding the lack of training is the lack of integration of addiction services into general medical care. Until 2008, payers didn't even have to cover addiction and mental health services the same way they cover medical benefits. And even though this law was passed over 13 years ago, there continues to be lawsuits and regulations to ensure compliance with the statute. Recognizing and treating addiction needs to be part of general medical services rather than being separate and distinct, which is what it typically is. One famous advocate, Patrick Kennedy, who served in Congress and is also the son of the late Senator Ted Kennedy, talks about the need for, I quote, checkup from the neck up. And what he's talking about is the need for every medical exam um, that a, a patient has should include an evaluation of brain health as well as evaluation of all the other body systems. That's what integration of addiction into medical services would look like. Lastly, there's significant regulations related to the treatment of this disease. There's regulations that govern some of the medications that can be used for treatment, making it harder for both patients and providers. We could probably do a whole separate podcast just on that issue alone. Um, some states have regulations that require providers with pregnant patients with addiction to contact Child Protective Services, resulting in women in those states often avoiding prenatal care. There are also regulations which fortunately are improving, but which require that addiction and mental health information and medical records be kept separate from general medical information. A general medical provider, therefore, may not even know that a patient is being treated for addiction unless the patient provides consent. Therefore, a, a patient, um, you know, that's why you end up with some of the situations that I think that Kathy was talking about, where a patient may end up with multiple medication because the provider may not know that a patient may be treated with medications for addiction, and then they may prescribe them other medications that contribute to that addiction. That's part of the problem that contributes to. Thank you, Penny. I, I think that like, for me personally, heading into this episode, I didn't know that there were so many structural barriers to providing and receiving um, services related to, be, to um, addiction medicine. I guess my hope is that as we as we start shifting towards payment models that support that that support outcomes and back outcomes and back holistic care, that providers can kind of 
you know, adapt and maybe recognize a little bit more uh, the role that uh, mental health and addiction medicine services play in the whole patient care. I, I hope that that's the case. Of course, this is um, a shift that's 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 overdue, but um, I, I hope that that's something that we we see a shift towards. I, I have a question also, and as as you're talking about this, we talked you talked a lot about true listening, um, you know, being involved in the conversation. My question is, how do those without addictions with emphasize with those that have pretty serious, heavy addictions, right? I mean, I think about the Tom Petty story, uh, you know, with when we talk about heroin or or the concoction of of drugs that he was ingesting, right? I mean, how does somebody that hasn't ever had those experiences or or or, or experienced an addiction listen to support and empathize with somebody who has? Well, I think that lack of empathy probably is what contributes to the stigma. Um, and I think that part of that in, in the medical environment is going to have to come through training and compassion and understanding. Um, that's not going to happen overnight. You know, as I said, there's a lot of language that providers themselves use. Um, and that it's, you know, when we think about cancer, there used to be a lot of stigma related to cancer and people were uncomfortable talking about that. And over time, that stigma has gone away. Um, and I think, but it took time. Um, and I think the same thing is going to be true, um, with addiction. Um, but there's no question that, um, you know, providers themselves have to understand and, um, address their own personal attitudes. And in fact, um, the organization I used to work with the American society of addiction medicine, ASAM launched a, um, training program for primary care providers, clinicians who didn't have any other training in addiction. And the first part of that training was all having to do with attitudes. And they actually had them watch a segment from the movie um, Leaving Las Vegas, um, where there was the whole interaction with um, the actor whose name's escaping me at the moment, but he was a, um, had significant alcoholism and lost his job and, and all. And so they watched a segment of that movie and when they stop, when the, the um, uh, educators stopped, you know, you could, you could basically hear a pin drop in the room. And then there was a reflection period where each of the attendees had to talk with the person sitting next to them about what they felt about watching that segment of the movie. And the whole idea was that clinicians have to come in, ta- in touch with their own feelings and their own attitudes about people with addiction in order for themselves to be able to appropriately treat people with that disease. I see. Thank you. Thank you for that, Penny. So I I want to just kind of direct the next question to you, but it's kind of speaking to our listeners, right? Our our listeners to the podcast, um, some of them are are Sloan students. Many of them are aspiring healthcare professionals, um, early careerists. So so what is all this information that we've discussed today? what does this mean for our listeners that are aspiring healthcare professionals? Well, for me, what, what it means is that, you know, wherever you work in healthcare, you're going to come in contact with addiction related issues. Um, you know, inpatient settings, outpatient settings, long-term care facilities, pharmaceutical companies, you know, you name it, you know, there, it touches all aspects of the healthcare system. But particularly, I know many Sloan students do um, move into um, hospital system, hospital settings or health system settings um, early after their graduation, including me. My first job after Sloan 
was managing the psychiatric and addiction services for a group of hospitals in upstate New York 40 years ago. Little did I know the impact that would have on my career. But in any case, particularly in some of those um, uh, hospital settings, there may be women in the OB department who give birth to babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome because their mother had opioid use disorder. Those are very complex and expensive patients to care for in uh, the NICU. There may be patients in the cardiac department with endocarditis related to intravenous drug use. There may be patients who come into the ER with uh, DTs related to alcohol withdrawal. Those patients are in all different parts of the system. Um, but none of these patients can be really be treated until their underlying disease of addiction has been addressed. Um, and there's good economic reasons to do this because at some point, you touched on it a few moments ago, Christian, payers will no longer pay for re readmissions if, if the continuing diagnosis is addiction related or reimbursed for preventable conditions and, and addiction is a preventable condition. Um, it's also the right thing to do for humanitarian reasons. And I think as future healthcare leaders, I think you can make a difference in your communities, in the lives of the people and their families in those communities. If you can advocate in your hospital and health system to treat patients underlying health condition, which includes treating addiction. I think that's to me the message for um, Sloan students and graduates. Excellent, thank you so much for that. So, be, you know, starting that conversation in, in the workplace when they happen, um, are there any other outlets or forums that you encourage Sloan students to maybe start talking about these issues today? Um, you know, as students, I think, you know, having, uh, making sure the colloquium includes um, a session talking about addiction and addiction treatment. I think is a chance. Um, I think uh, if Kathy's there. I think I don't know how it gets incorporated into the curriculum, so that the students learn something about it as um, part of their education, and then at the colloquium, bringing um, uh, Sloan graduates um, and other health professionals who have experience um, in treatment of the, the disease. I think those are ways to start the conversations. But I think as you said at the beginning, Christian, um, everyone, and, and studies show this over and over, have no, know someone directly or indirectly that are touched by addiction. And so it's an easy conversation to start. The hard part is dealing as, as you um, framed it, these structural barriers that make it difficult to deal with this disease, but we're not going to make progress um, with the overdose death rates, the cost to our society, the cost to families and communities, unless we start addressing it now. You know, I, I just wanna emphasize what, what Penny is saying. And, and by the way, Penny, I, I take what you said as a challenge. I'm gonna make sure it gets into the curriculum and I'm gonna play some Tom Petty music when, when I do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I wanna say something about healthcare administrators. Um, Penny and I have spent our whole life as healthcare administrators and Christian, you and Peyton are, are, are the up and coming and, and we're very hopeful for you guys and, and all the Sloan students. Healthcare administrators have the amazing opportunity to every single day when they walk into their institutions, care about the well-being of everyone coming in the door, the physicians, the nurses, the therapists, the front desk staff, you know, the janitor, the cook in the kitchen, the patients, everybody 
walking in the door deserves our attention with regards to their well-being. And if we as leaders in healthcare demonstrate how to show respect to everyone, and by the way, providers can get down these slippery slopes too. I've taken care of a lot of providers in, in my time as well as patients um, because you know this disease can happen to everyone. But we, we just have a, a tremendous opportunity to look after so many people. And if we can keep tossing respect to everybody and frame this discussion in a way that reduces the stigma, stigma we will be doing our jobs. Yeah, I think that one of my takeaways from this episode, kind of going along with that of caring for everybody that comes through the doors, is what, what am I going to do or what am I doing to address those four barriers that talked that, that, that Penny talked about today um, that contribute to the medical and economic burden of the disease? You know, what am I doing to reduce the stigma? What am I doing in my organization to promote train, sensitivity training around this disease? You know, how will I help as a, as an, as a leader in my, in my healthcare organization integrate treatment and interventions towards this disease? Um, and am I advocating for policy that supports this as well? So these are all things that I, I hope our listeners are, are keen to also is those four specific barriers that Penny, Penny addressed. What are, what are we doing to help, um, to help lower those? So thank you, Kathy and Penny, both for sharing your stories and perspectives and, and insights and advice um, to our listeners today on such a critical topic, one of which you know, as, as it was said, addresses us all, um, you know, indirectly or, or even directly, right? And so I hope that um, this is a lesson or a, an episode that's introspective that we think about our role in this um, as well. And so um, we're always welcome on the Health Conscious Podcast. We always welcome um, ideas for future episodes. Uh, feel free to subscribe if you haven't already. Um, we release episodes on a biweekly basis. Um, and we're going to include in the, in the, um, in the description of this episode, some resources to turn to around addiction medicine as well. So thanks again for listening um, to the Health Conscious Podcast.